This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Acrobats, jugglers, and three Met debutantes take the stage in Philip Glass's Akhenaten. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we go deep into Glass's hypnotic score as we explore the world of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. Join us at the Met Opera Guild's annual luncheon. On November 20th at Cipriani 42nd Street, we'll honor Martina Arroyo and Teresa Stratus on the 60th anniversary of their Met debuts. With appearances by Harold Blackwell, Stephanie Blythe, and Eric Owens, and a musical tribute by Eileen Perez and Matthew Polanzani, this luncheon will be a highlight of the opera season. Tickets start at 275. For reservations, call 212-769-7009 or visit metguild.org/diamond. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. For the first time in Met Opera history, Philip Glass's Akhenaten is coming to the stage. This much-anticipated Met premiere is a deep meditation on the driving force of religion and a powerful reminder of the fine line between revolution and destruction. Performances star countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo in the title role, Janai Bridges making her Met debut as his wife, Nefertiti, and conductor Karen Kamensek making her Met debut at the podium. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer W. Anthony Shepard discusses the story of the pharaoh who transformed ancient Egypt. Thank you very much. Um, I see some familiar faces and then a lot of new faces, so that's nice. Thank you for coming out. Uh, walking down Broadway to here was a bitter experience with that wind, so I know what you went through. Speaking of the weather, we do not look directly at the sun, but we sense its presence nevertheless. We feel its warmth and observe its impact, but on ophthalmologist strict orders avert our eyes, except perhaps to peek at its rising and setting. The sun so profoundly affects our lives and all life, and yet we dare not stare too closely at it. In listening to Akhenaten, we similarly sense a profound meaning and experience a powerful affect, 
And yet we would be hard pressed to explain why or to describe what it all might mean. The musical details are blinding in their repetitiveness, seemingly turning aside our interpretive efforts, reflecting back upon us, leaving meaning up to us to determine. We are moved by this opera without knowing exactly why. This experience is somewhat similar to encounters with symbolist works from a century and more ago, such as Debussy's opera Peleus and Melisande. In experiencing the symbolist aesthetic, we sense that a profound meaning lies just behind the veil of the work's surface simplicity, despite the absence of any explicitly stated meanings. The story and symbolism is felt rather than told in detail, suggested rather than depicted. Glass's use of seemingly simple materials of very minimal means somehow results in a maximal impact. Agnaughton radiates a powerful aura. Glass has composed nearly 30 operas or works of music theater, at the center of which stands his trilogy, the 1976 Einstein on the Beach, the 1980 Satyagraha, and the 1983 Akhenaten. A commission from Germany spurred his idea to retroactively create an operatic trilogy with the composition of, of Akhenaten. The three operas engaging with science, politics, and religion in turn are explicitly linked by Glass, and he has even suggested, like Wagner, that it would be nice if they were performed together during one week. The three are also linked by what Glass has referred to as his trilogy theme. A motive clearly associated with the title character himself in tonight's opera. Einstein on the Beach, with an opening that reminds me of Wagner's Rheingold, runs four and a half hours without a break. We're getting off easy tonight. Although the audience is expected to come and go as they wish. I have sat through the entire thing of Einstein twice, which is a minor claim to fame that I found spiritually uplifting but physically exhausting. Einstein was Glass's breakthrough work, and its influence is felt in the other two operas in his trilogy. However, for many, Akhenaten comes far closer to matching our operatic expectations. Indeed, a bit later this evening, I will even point to what I hear as a specific allusion in Akhenaten to a canonic opera from the deep past. That gave you something to look forward to. Glass and his collaborator on Einstein, Robert Wilson, viewed Einstein on the Beach as a portrait opera, a work that would not present a clear narrative involving the historical figure at its center, but that would instead inspire, be inspired by and would present iconic images associated with that historical figure and the broader aspects of society that he, Einstein, touched. Wilson and Glass removed the genre's focus on words and redirected it towards the visual dimension. In fact, Robert Wilson's directorial style has been referred to as resulting in a theater of images. In focusing on the visual element in the creative process, Glass's trilogy recalls the emphasis on stunning tableau in French Grand Opera, a 19th century operatic form in which scenes were designed specifically to build up to an overwhelming singing stage picture. Both Einstein and Akhenaten include a major dance section as well, which was also central to 19th century French opera. 
Likewise, Glass's operas point back to the importance of the visual element in 17th century Venetian opera. Akhenaten is similarly structured around iconic moments from the historical pharaoh's life, but it grew from a rather more complex backstory than did Einstein on the beach, and several of, of Akhenaten's associations are rather deeply buried, requiring some archaeological excavation here. Other narratives and profound historical cultural developments lie behind this opera's synopsis. In selecting Akhenaten as a subject, Glass had been inspired by a rather provocative study that argued that the singular Egyptian pharaoh was actually the model for the Greek character Oedipus. The composer was also intrigued by the argument that Akhenaten was the first figure in history to promote a form of monotheism that may have led to Judaism and thus to Christianity and Islam as well. In Glass's original plan for this opera, the Oedipus and Akhenaten stories were to have been presented together on stage. However, this plan for narrative alternation was dropped. Traces of the Oedipus legend and even its Freudian ramifications are evident throughout the opera and have been emphasized in some productions. Rather more explicitly, the opera suggests a direct connection between Akhenaten's new religion and Judaism by having an offstage chorus sing Psalm 104 in Hebrew immediately following Akhenaten's solo hymn to Aten. Our experience of Glass's operatic trilogy is further veiled by each libretto's language. In Einstein on the Beach, a good deal of the sung text consists of numbers and solfege syllables. Satyagraha is sung entirely in Sanskrit. Much of Akhenaten employs several ancient languages, though Akhenaten's hymn is to be sung in the predominant language of the audience, and the narrator speaks in English. Glass has explained his linguistic choices, quote, I liked the idea of further separating the vocal text from the action. In this way, without an understandable text to contend with, the listener could let the words go altogether. The weight of meaning would then be thrown onto the music, the designs, and the stage action. In composing the second and third operas of his trilogy, Glass says he, quote, was using those languages as an exotic medium and even playing up on their exoticness in Akhenaten. I wanted the exoticness of the language to give it an esoteric sound. In doing so, Glass was following the model of Stravinsky, who had Cocteau's French libretto for Oedipus Rex translated into Latin, but then added a narrator who relates the story in the audience's language. Though I suspect few members of the Met audience are able to translate the sung ancient Egyptian lyrics, I will argue that we do sense the basic meaning of the text through our experience of the music. But first, let me offer a brief nuts and bolts introduction to Akhenaten and to Glass's musical style. On the screen, I've projected uh, an outline of the basic structure or plot of this opera. As you're looking at this, you see the opera is in three large acts, each consisting of four sections. So there's a three versus four. However, in the experience of the opera, the prelude and scene one are sort of elided together. Scene three and scene four in act two are elided together. And act three, scene three and four are also elided together. 
So it's more felt as though there are three acts with three uh, sections in each act. But this question of three versus four is going to turn out to be pretty important for our experience of the music of this opera. There's a lot of tension. A lot of his rhythmic energy is fueled by a tension between three and four. Glass's music and his version of minimalism is fundamentally rhythmic at heart. His music has been called many names. Pulse music, process music, pattern music, repetition music, but it is generally referred to by the M word, minimalism, which Glass rightly argues is not very descriptive of his style or of his compositional techniques. Personally, I think pattern music is more apt, but like everyone else, I'll use minimalism here. The musical styles and techniques which we refer to as minimalist can be traced back to the late 1960s. They flourished in the 70s and 80s and over the last three decades have appeared in various forms of popular music, film scores, and television ads. Which is all to say that minimalism moved from the outermost fringes of American musical culture to permeate our musical culture. We don't even notice how much minimalist style we hear all the time. Actually, minimalism can be traced back stylistically to the motoric rhythms and arpeggios of the Baroque period. Think of Vivaldi. The endless sequences and flow experienced in Wagner. Think of the prelude to Tristan and Udisolde. The intense ostinati and layered rhythms of Stravinsky, as in the Rite of Spring. And of course, minimalism in the 70s resembled the steady pulse and drive of disco, as discussed in a book by the UCLA musicologist Robert Fink. In using the term minimalism, critics and scholars normally have in mind music that has the following features. In terms of harmony, it's fairly static, hanging on to one chord, staying in one key for an extended period of time. In terms of rhythm, it often involves additive process, something that I'll illustrate in just a couple of minutes. In terms of musical texture, minimalist music tends to be very consistent. Once the winds start playing, they play for quite a while. Um, and clear or transparent. You can clearly hear when the brass enter on top of the winds and the two groups are moving together. Um, and you can hear the different subsections of the orchestra. Minimalist music in terms of melody uh, relies on thematic and motivic repetition. You didn't need to come here tonight to know that minimalism involves repetition. Um, and this melodic material tends to be of the simplest uh, type, scalar passages, arpeggios. Finally, minimalist music involves repetitive processes, uh, music that's based on repetitive processes and techniques. Repetition appears to be central to any composer whose music has been labeled minimalist, but minimalism is not simply repetition. Simultaneously, it is repetitive, but uh, through a process of gradual change, a clear process of incremental change. This imparts to the music a sense of stasis, but of also constant motion at the same time. In this way, I think minimalist, experiencing minimalist music is somewhat similar to experiencing op art, an apparently simple design using primary visual elements that can impact our minds, our perceptions, our emotions in direct and powerful and somewhat mysterious ways. If minimalism works for you, you likely appreciate the tension between repetition, stasis, 
and constant change, motion. So I mentioned additive process as fundamental specifically to Philip Glass's music. And what do I mean by that? Well, in his early rigorous minimalist music, Glass would take basic melodic units and expand them through additive processes. So for instance, uh, in 1969, 50 years ago, isn't it hard to believe? Uh, 50 years ago, Glass wrote the piece Music in Fifths, the melodic material. is indeed uh, two lines a fifth apart. And what he does is he takes this simple passage I displayed, scalar passage, and he adds um, to it in um, thinking of it in smaller units. He'll add a pitch on the way up, and then he'll add a pitch on the way down. And he keeps doing this to expand it to over 200 pitches, that simple uh, eight, eight pitch uh, phrase I displayed. do it quite a bit faster. Okay, you get the idea. Playing out a process before our very ears, one that we could hear. In Akhenaten, um, focusing on the melodic and rhythmic material, I find that the simplest material can nevertheless have an emotional impact. The simplest arpeggiated scalar material, through contrast, and through change can have a dramatic significance for us. At least that's what I'm going to be arguing for the rest of this evening uh, today. So for instance, in Act 1, Scene 3, The Window of Appearances, we hear this. I hope you won't be surprised by my interpretation that it is giving us a sense of standing still, of hypnosis, right? Of, of um, sort of a, a quiet, simple, static beauty. Contrasting with that, in the scene where the old temple and the old religion is attacked, uh, we hear this. which has a certain urgency, driving forward feeling. Something is unstable, and sure enough, there is uh, a major event here undermining the old, um, old order. Or, for a third example, in the hymn in Act 2, Scene 4, we hear these simple scalar passages. have a certain elegance to them, a simple, serene beauty, and yet all they are are scales, right? <laughs> Through contrast. Another aspect of his music that provides drama 
is this alternation and tension between three and four in the fundamental rhythmic elements of this music. And this plays out all over the place in this score. So, for instance, sometimes three verses four are heard in alternation. So we hear one, two, three, 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 four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, 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 four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. So this tension as we alternate back and forth between groups of three and groups of four. Um, and this plays out sometimes. Um, sometimes we hear three and four simultaneously. Uh, sometimes we hear three and four in succession. In the prelude, we hear eight bars of four-note uh, four groups. Such that, after hearing this for eight bars, when suddenly it goes to feels like something dramatic has happened. Suddenly a bit of energy has been uh, pumped into the music, and all that happened was we moved from fours to threes, and yet it juiced it up for us. It electrified it for us at that, at that moment. Again, and sometimes we'll hear examples of three uh, and four uh, simultaneously. So, for instance, uh, in a passage that has a lot of tension to it, dramatic tension and energy, we hear some of the instruments playing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, while other instruments are simultaneously playing one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And if you want to try this, in fact, you are going to try this right now. Get your two hands up in the air. We're going to learn something tonight. And on your laps, you're going to do this. You're going to use your right hand to play uh, twos in the time of your left hand playing threes. If you think about it, you can't do it. But I, if you actually watch, watch my hands, you'll see that my right hand is playing two beats for every three on my left hand. And that's what a PhD gives you. Wrong. <laughs> I actually learned the trick from my friend who was in high school marching band. And all you have to do is say, not difficult, not difficult, not difficult, not difficult. If you try to count two and three at the same time, impossible. So just not difficult. OK, you learned something. Good. <clears throat> now, for terminological purists, I should note that, strictly speaking, Akhenaten is already an example of a post-minimalist work in that it resembles Glass's earlier minimalist pieces in style, but does not strictly play out processes all the way up to you know, 200 uh, pitches as music and fifths did back in 1969. He got softer in terms of minimalist processes as he moved into his operatic, uh, on in his operatic career. So I've been claiming that these simple musical, melodic, and rhythmic materials can have a big dramatic significance and impact. Can they? Can these scales and arpeggios tell us anything about characters or about setting? or about mood? Well, let's find out whether or not adding a note here or there creates emotional expression or just puzzling, mesmerizing patterns. I'm going to turn to several specific sections in Akhenaten to address these questions, starting with the prelude, the opening. So if you think about operatic history, once opera got going, the overture frequently either 
was an advertisement for all the great hit tunes of the opera, or the overture was a way of signaling to us something about the story that was to follow. Uh, we could hear an overture in, a, in some 19th century operas and know that somebody was going to die because the overture told us without any words, right? What about Glass's prelude? The prelude is a test case for us. Can this music of simple scales and arpeggios mean anything at all? Well, I'm going to make it a test case. And first, we're going to listen to just the first minute or two, a couple minutes. And then I will at least give you my interpretation, although I do know the story, of what I think this uh, prelude is telling me in the music. <laughs> The general affect, at least to my ear, is tragic and momentous. Why do I have this perception? Well, I think specific musical features clue me in. First, the mode is A minor. We have an association in opera and in Western music with minor as something uh, tragic. Rhythmic tension, that three versus four shift that I mentioned before, giving us a sense of urgency. And then a moment um, a bit on where we hear three and four simultaneously against each other. Instrumentation. In the prelude, the strings are then joined by the winds, which are then joined by the brass, creating a sense of building structure and intensity simply by adding these different instrumental groups. All the woodwind and low strings play until rehearsal 14 when the brass enter with an assertive rhythm which suddenly feels like the sky has opened up or something more urgent is being signaled. We get three different rhythm rhythms layered on top of each other. And I should mention that brass, by the way, has been a sign of the sacred and the underworld in opera since Monteverdi's Orfeo. And then we get trombones coming in very prominently at rehearsal 21 in the prologue, which goes all the way back to Monteverdi's Orfeo in the beginning of opera in signaling uh, the this, solemnity this and um, um, the ritual aspect of this prelude. And finally, the register is pretty low. We get some low uh, pedal point notes in the orchestra. All of this fits very well with the funeral scene which follows, but it points more generally to the tragedy of Akhenaten himself right from the opening measures. When the narrator enters, especially when he has an unaccompanied speech, he seems to frame the opera as a ritual service, something like a mass, for example. 
The prelude sets up the general mood of this opera, but doesn't necessarily tell us where the story is going to take place. Can Glass's minimalist style signal ancient Egypt somehow to us? Well, in preparation for the composition of Satyagraha, Glass made multiple trips to India. Likewise, he visited numerous ancient Egyptian sites and the Cairo Museum for Akhenaten. Such travel has long played into works aimed at presenting some form of exotic authenticity on stage. Glass has explained that in seeking to depict the, quote, uniqueness of his exotic title character, he decided to compose for the countertenor voice, a high male voice that Glass's audiences would perceive as exotic, or so he supposed. We're going to return to the countertenor voice a bit later. Act one, scene one, a funeral. This funeral sounds exotic. In fact, it sounds a lot like Exotica from uh, popular musical culture from decades ago. It comes in three big sections in which the cross rhythms are such that we can get lost in the rhythmic energy. Glass said that this was his depiction of ancient Egyptian funeral music. He said that the drums create, quote, raw, primitive, quasi-military sound, but he notes that it's not based on anything actually Egyptian. It works in the theater. The idea is that the musical style symbolized the world that Akhenaten is going to overturn. In 1994, Robert Fink posited that Glass was offering a parody of Grand Opera in Akhenaten in Act 3, Scene 2, though Fink noted that, quote, it's hard to know whether the drums are there to poke fun at the reactionary priests or at us. I think the same question can be applied to the funeral scene uh, percussion. research on Glass's operas, I've found that the closer Glass comes to parody and satire, the more his music bends towards stylistic illusion and quotation, flowing arpeggios and additive process alone proving not sufficient to the representational task at hand. Speaking of which, let's turn to Act 1, Scene 2, the coronation scene where we encounter another unexpected signal of musical exoticism. The scene starts, um, we hear the trilogy theme, that falling A-G-C motive, which tells us this is Akhenaten, right? It's his coronation. We hear a trumpet solo heralding Akhenaten, and the trumpet is closely allied, uh, aligned with Akhenaten throughout um, several numbers in the opera. But then we hear 
what I think of as a very unexpected, exotic cliché, one that I'll play at the piano first, and then we'll hear in the big chorus version uh, in the opera. So what we hear is this chord progression. chord progression, at least in terms of the logic of tonal harmony, has no logic to it. It has no progression. It's languorous. It's decorative. All it does is float up above chromatically from the tonic chord and then sink right back down, right? Um, but what it really has to our ears is a Spanish tinta, a Spanish flavor to it, associated with some aspects of Spanish music, but more clearly associated with representations of Spain in music. So at this big moment uh, in the coronation scene, suddenly the Egyptians sound awfully Spanish, at least in a cliche <laughs> terms to me. uses this style also in The Voyage, uh, an opera about Columbus, a portrait opera about Columbus, for a scene in which prehistoric Earth natives encounter an alien spaceship commander. We get the same basic style that we just heard. Perhaps a more general feature of this opera's music resonates with its exotic ancient Egyptian setting. Music in this opera is presented in big, clear chunks or blocks of music. Music seems monumental in Akhenaten, like ancient Egyptian stone monuments composed of massive blocks of rock. Another thing that Glass has to signal in this opera, just as he signaled in a, I think, somewhat satirical way, the old religion, the old order, he has to create the sound of Akhenaten's new religion. A sound that is more tranquil and um, uh, suggests purity in its musical elements. Parroting the musical style of the old regime of Akhenaten's father demanded this sound of the new religion. And we first hear it in Act 1, Scene 3, the window of appearances. What do we hear? We hear tubular bells recalling the sound of a European Christian church and trombone fifths traditional sonic signs of the sacred in Western music. And maybe I'm the only one, but I also hear a wink at the Westminster Chimes uh, melody itself. In this scene, Window of Appearances, Akhenaten first enters solo. Finally, we hear his voice, and likely it strikes us as angelic. He starts to chant on the pitch A, and then he sings on the pitch A the, the, the word ah, ah, Akhenaten. There's a great purity for this religious text. I'll now play a video excerpt from this scene from a production on 2013 at Indiana University with Nicholas Tomagna playing um, the part of Akhenaten.
in this scene as Akhenaten first sings and then is joined by a soprano who's his mother, Ty, rather than with his wife Nefertiti who is an alto and lower than him and she comes in third. Another thing that Glass expresses with those arpeggios and scalar passages and rhythms is drama of aggression and violence in this opera. In sharp contrast to what we just heard is Glass's musical depiction of the violence as Akhenaten and his mother Tai lead the destruction of the old temple in Act 2, Scene 1. This music is almost melodramatic in a silent film sc uh, score sense in its ominous signals at the start. It's music that foreshadows the violence to come. When the old order's priests and the populace turn on Akhenaten and his family and attack them in Act 3, Scene 2, Glass employs aggressive rhythms and abrupt meter switches that destabilize and seem to undermine Akhenaten's rule and new religion right before our very ears. We're going to hear this, but rhythmically pay attention to the alternation between groups of three and four and the unexpected shifts uh, in meter from 7-8 to 12-8 to 6-4 to 7-8 to 9-8. It sounds something like this. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three, one, two, 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 three, two, four, two, five, two, six, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. Oh, I practice that, don't I? <laughs> Thank you. 
seem surprising that minimalist techniques and materials can be employed for such emotional and symbolic expression in opera, but I hope some of these examples have made the case. Perhaps for many listeners, the most striking musical feature of Glass's score for Akhenaten was his decision to cast the titular character as a countertenor. Glass has explained that he made this decision because the character is, quote, extremely peculiar. I would like to focus on two numbers in this opera that seem to exploit the countertenor voice, both for its current associations with gender and for its seemingly angelic purity and archaism. The first example is the love duet from Act 2, Scene 2, between Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And I've put the text on the screen. Given that the narrator speaks this text first, it sets it up more as a ritual text rather than as Akhenaten and Nefertiti's actual own personal words to each other. Akhenaten and Nefertiti then share the lines of this text expressing their love. Like the other Egyptian texts in this opera, this text comes from an ancient source. I breathe the sweet breath which comes forth from thy mouth. I behold thy beauty every day. It is my desire that I may be rejuvenated with life through love of thee. The solo trumpet, which will also support or even duet with Akhenaten in the hymn, becomes something of a third voice in this piece suggesting a trio. Let's listen to it first, and then I'm going to point out some features uh, at the piano of this duet. We're going to hear Paul Eswood as Akhenaten and Milagro Vargas as Nefertiti. could see my hands, my right hand is going to play the part of Akhenaten, and my left hand is going to play the line of Nefertiti. And you would notice, if you could see my hands, that they are going to cross at certain points where Nefertiti goes above Akhenaten, um, and their voices wrap around each other tightly and erotically. So here is um, part of the duet, Nefertiti, and then Akhenaten comes in. Now, what do, you, what do you notice about that? That's dissonant, isn't it, right? 
And um, we shouldn't be too surprised because in the profound words of John Mellencamp, of course, sometimes love don't feel like it should. She makes it hurt so good is the only explanation. Well, so Akhenaten has come down and clashed with Nefertiti, who then leaps down to this note, creating another dissonance. And it's the most evil dissonance of all. It's the tritone, which splits the octave in half. And if you took your music theory like you should have, you would know it's a terrible interval, terrible interval. OK. But it resolves. And then they go again. Um, now she's above him. And another tritone before it resolves. Going forward. Again, big clash, and they stay on it. She jumps down, more dissonance before resolving, okay? Now, this duet reminds me very much of a very famous love duet in opera history of the love duet between Popea and Nero in Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea, which was not, the duet was not written by Monteverdi, but that's a whole other story. Uh, indeed, the same voice crossing, when my left and right hand crossed over each other, the same voice crossing, the exact same dissonance on the exact same pitches are found in uh, the Popea and Nero's duet from several centuries earlier. Um, so, for instance, I'll point that out and then we'll listen to it. So, we hear, uh, my right hand is Popea, my left hand is Nero, uh, we hear Nero, who is clashing, by the way, with the, the bass line, but we'll leave the bass line out for now. Uh, Nero sings, and the bass line is, and then Nero goes to the tritone there before resolving it. And now, what's her name? Popea is on B, Nero's above her. Sorry, Popea, that doesn't resolve anything. That's a tritone, but that does, okay? And here is um, uh, an actual video of this love duet from the uh, coronation of Popea with Philippe Doruski and Danielle Denise um, singing the love duet. And I have the text up here. I gaze at you. I tighten closer to you. I delight in you. I am bound to you. I no longer suffer. I no longer die. Oh my life, oh my treasure, oh me, oh my, the dissonance of it all.
Furthermore, Nero was a castrato, Akhenaten is a countertenor. I can't believe that this is all a coincidence, but what does this illusion signify? Nero and Popea were immoral characters. Is there any suggestion that Akhenaten and Nefertiti are immoral? Later in the opera, it does become clear that their intense, insular family love has made them blind to the problems of their empire and deaf to the complaints of their subjects and leads to their downfall. If you know the history of Nero Popea, they both ended badly, actually, just as Akhenaten and Nefertiti do as well. For most commentators on this opera, Akhenaten's hymn is the big number, the ravishing musical center point, the aria in English. Akhenaten, it is in English, this one number. Akhenaten, in essence, sings a love song of praise to his god, Aten. Quote, there is no other that knows thee save thy, thy son, Akhenaten. Again, this is a ritualistic text, and the vocal melodic lines suggest chanting. There are also several suggestions suggestions of word painting, as for example, when Akhenaten sings high above, the melody leaps up. This number is very reminiscent of Baroque music in a number of ways, though unlike the love duet, I do not hear a clear connection to a specific pre-existent piece. However, it is quite clear that Glass is drawing on a pre-existent Baroque form, the Chacon, as he did in Satyagraha. We hear this repeated over and over again, um, a harmonic progression that resembles the Baroque uh, Chacon. Interest of time, we will skip hearing the hymn. I know. All right, okay. <laughs> I know. All right, here we go. solo trumpet line and Akhenaten's melody produce some nice, beautiful dissonances, just as we heard in Akhenaten's duet with Nefertiti. Is the trumpet the voice of Aten in this new love duet? John Richardson, in his highly impressive study of the opera, has suggested as much. He also claims that the hymn, quote, treats the entire history of Western classical music as an archaeological site, digging up signifiers from the musical past and by the very act of representation, uprooting them from the semantic field that formerly, formerly nourished them. As I mentioned earlier, Akhenaten's hymn is immediately followed by an offstage chorus singing Psalm 104 in Hebrew. This rather clearly states the historical claim that Akhenaten's monotheism led to Judaism, and it closely resembles the ending of Satyagraha, in which Gandhi's prayer seems to be answered visually by the image of Dr. Martin Luther King 
appearing on high with Gandhi's followers, now masked behind the next political spiritual leader. In both operas, Glass suggests a deep continuity stretching across history, a passing of the torch, a sense of hope. At this point, we should turn our attention away from the composer and to those who actually bring the opera to life on the stage. Back in early September, I was very fortunate to have a chance to sit down in my office with Anthony Roth Costanzo, the countertenor who has come to own the role of Akhenaten. For Costanzo, Akhenaten is a complicated character, quote, a visionary who is tragic in a lot of ways, and that's what makes him operatic. In Costanzo's view, it remains unclear whether Akhenaten was ultimately a good or a bad historical figure, which is why he finds him so interesting to portray on stage. I asked Costanzo why he thought so many contemporary operas in recent decades have included parts for countertenors. He suggested that the countertenor voice is viewed as, quote, a kind of extended technique by composers, and that, quote, opera is often trying to express something ineffable. And there is something about the countertenor voice which is both very primal and old and connected to old things, but also very otherworldly and unusual. I also asked Costanzo about the challenges in performing this role, and he pointed to the hymn that we just heard, in which he aims to produce a tender sound with sweetness, but one that has enough chord to cut through the orchestral texture. He also notes that the extended temple scene requires tremendous endurance, as he repeats ah an astonishing number of times. In working with the conductor, Karen Kamensik, he aimed to, quote, find the expression over the phrase or through the larger repetitions, which produces a greater emotional impact, rather than getting too caught up in the measure-to-measure -measure detailed repetitions. Costanza noted that it is very hard to keep in mind where you are in the repetitions and that it is, quote, always a struggle to stay aware of where you are musically when you are performing. You want to get lost in it, but if you get too lost in it, you lose where you are in the music. <laughs> Costanzo finds the part, quote, very challenging, but not in any way impossible, which of course is obvious given the critical acclaim he has received in the role in performances in London and LA and now at the Met. However, Costanzo explained that he uses his same voice or same vocal palette or technique for both Handel and Glass, and that he even views Handel as, quote, the proto-minimalist in the way that Handel breaks up text in little chunks and rearranges them in a way that's not dissimilar to how Glass treats chunks of music. Of greatest interest to me in our conversation was what Anthony revealed about the Akhenaten production process and how he views this opera in dramatic terms. In his view, Glass creates a canvas in his music and leaves it up to the performers, quote, to embellish it, and that there is a great deal of theatrical freedom in the opera. Costanza explained that the cast worked with the director, Phelan McDermott, to, quote, storyboard the entire opera, creating the moment-by-moment -moment narrative that Glass and his libretto collaborators did not spell out thereby creating a storyline that the performers keep in mind throughout their performance. In singing Akhenaten, Costanzo employs timbre and dynamics to add meaning and narrative drama that is not otherwise present in the notes. He creates variety through the repetition of phrases and sections as he does when he performs, say, the return of the A section in a Handel da Capo aria.
When I asked him whether he experiences significant differences between singing the ancient Egyptian texts and the English text in the hymn and the extended sections when all he sings is ah, he replied emphatically in the negative. For him, quote, it is all exactly the same, for he knows what all the Egyptian words mean. In fact, he said, quote, now that we've created the production and the story, I know what all of the different ahs mean to me too and what's going on. So I'm always communicating something, which maybe it's just my optimism, but I feel the audience on some level understands. Whether it's exactly moment to moment or not, they see a story play out on stage and that's the success of this production. As he explained, quote, when you imagine a storyline, it colors everything differently. For the dramatic imagination shapes the sound and controls the technique. Quote, I do feel the audience perceives that as presence on stage and as a kind of resonance of the story. People get really emotional about this production. The Met's production is directed by the phenomenal Felon McDermott. McDermott's approach to directing Glass's operas, as is evident in both his productions of Satyagraha and Akhenaten, is to present more action and movement than, for example, in productions by Robert Wilson, but to shape this action into moments offering similarly powerful stage pictures. McDermott's fundamental design ideas typically derive from his research into each opera's subject. For example, his production of Satyagraha featured a great deal of newsprint that was treated kinetically in creating puppet figures and setting, and that thereby symbolically emphasized the crucial role of a newspaper in the dissemination of Gandhi's political ideas. His production of Akhenaten features jugglers drawing on famous wall painting depictions of such ancient entertainers and making visible the sense of melodic wheels spinning within larger wheels and kinetic patterns in Glass's music. Of course, the most discussed feature of McDermott's production was his decision to ask the countertenor to appear nude in the coronation scene. Costanzo has repeatedly discussed how having his body entirely shaved and appearing nude before thousands of opera goers actually allows him to, quote, cross the line into the character, fully entering into Akhenaten's otherness. Let's conclude by turning to the critics. Quote, he treats boredom as a useful drug for the stupefaction of the faithful. His music is mere hypnotism, and he does not belong in the history of music, but in the history of theater. He exploits spirituality for mere theatrical effect. His music is admirable only in the invention of what is smallest, in spinning out the details. His works are decadent, and he has made music sick. His operas are not really operas at all. These and similar critical barbs were actually all flung at Richard Wagner by the likes of Hanslick, Nietzsche, Cocteau, and Brecht. Similar swipes have been made at the operas of Philip Glass throughout much of his career. In fact, I well remember as an undergraduate being told in all seriousness by a visiting composer not to listen to Glass's music at all, for it was bad for me. Both Wagner and Glass were by far the most popular, controversial, and arguably most influential composers of their time. Both inspired cult-like devotion on the part of their fans, and both aimed at a higher spiritual plane and social function than mere entertainment for their operas. 
Wagner's operatic Tetralogy and Glass's Trilogy both seem to demand that we let go of all else and submit ourselves to the work. I suspect that both Wagner's and Glass's critics shared something else in common, a suspicion that they were being manipulated by the music, music that on the page would appear too elemental to have much impact or to encode much in the way of meaning. Just as I repeatedly and eagerly succumb to Wagner's endless lines and wave upon wave of musical emoting and then feel a bit guilty for having done so, I occasionally feel slightly embarrassed by my response to Glass's music, as though afraid that I am once again being manipulated by music that on the surface one would think shouldn't move me much at all, but move me it does on each encounter. The sun manipulates our actions, our daily schedule, our moment-by-moment -moment gaze, our experience of time, and yet we rarely stop to consider its existence and impact. We submit to the sun's power. Likewise, now that we work through the opera together, perhaps we have some sense of how it achieves its emotional affects and what deeper cultural meanings it may suggest. I suspect, however, that the opera retains much of its mystery for us. I encourage you to experience and submit Talk Naughton's Radiance, perhaps without sweating the details. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was W. Anthony Shepard exploring the world of power in prayer in Akhenaten. This opera is on stage now at the Met, running through December 7, 2019. And if you can't make it to Lincoln Center for a live performance, you can catch Akhenaten live in HD on Saturday, November 23rd. For more information, visit metopera.org slash incinemas, and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>